Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom, and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits at ElevatePod.com. In this guide, created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at ElevatePod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you. Welcome to Elevate the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Stefan Zvetkov today. Wow. Today, you are going to learn about the advanced data-driven mindset for real estate investing and for wealth building in real estate, because this is uh, the game is changing. It's changing in front of our eyes. And if you want to stay relevant, if you want to maximize your opportunities, today's episode is for you. This is a phenomenal episode, and we're going to go deep. We're going to drill into some new advanced techniques that perhaps you may may not be aware of, maybe you are aware of, but I think we're going to expand your mind in such a massive way today. You're also going to learn about really what is that mindset? What is the data-driven mindset for real estate investing, and why is that important? You're going to learn that today. Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. I'm your host, Tyler Chester, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job on this podcast to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And uh, I want to thank you so much for being here and listening to Elevate Podcast. We are so grateful to have the opportunity to pour into you. So I just want to thank you for being here on behalf of myself and my team. So thankful. And uh, if you're your first time listening to Elevate, welcome. You are important to us. And it's important that we add value to you every single time. Today is going to be no different. And I uh, want to invite you to pay the fee. If you haven't done so already, go ahead and share this episode with a friend. Share this episode on social media. Just grab the link and send that immediately. And that's all we really ask is for you to do that. We also ask that you give us a rating, review, and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcasts on wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Um, that's very important to us as well. And we're so grateful for every single one of your reviews and uh, subscriptions and and follows because you know what? We're, we put a lot into this and we want to make sure that we continue to add value to you. And without further ado, I want to introduce you to Stefan Zvetkov, who is the founder of Realty Quant, a company that brings data-driven and quantitative techniques to the real estate industry. He's on a mission to add massive industry value through education, investment, technology, and analytics. And you're going to see that in real time today. He's a financial engineer turned multifamily investor, analytics speaker, and live webinar host. He holds a master degree and master's degree in financial engineering from Columbia University. And during his finance career, he managed over $90 billion in derivatives portfolio jointly with his colleagues. He's been featured on many different podcasts and webinar events, including Invest Up, Best Ever Real Estate Show, Discovering Multifamily, and now LV Podcasts. He's also the host of the Finance Meets, Read Up, Meets Real Estate uh, webinar series. And so without further ado, please enjoy this awesome, insightful conversation with Stefan Svetkov. Stefan Svetkov, how are you, my friend? Welcome to Elevate. I'm great. How are you, Tyler? Thanks for having me here. Man, I'm so excited. Uh, it was fun to get to know you just briefly here before this conversation. I know it's going to be very insightful. I know we're going to learn so much. And I'm excited to sit down with you and, and really learn from you and with you. Before we dive into this conversation, Stefan, if you were to describe yourself in the way that the people that know you best would describe you, what would they say about Stefan Zvetkov? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, they would say an analytical guy, you know. <laughs> investor, wealth investments, and things like that. So yeah, I would say they would say analytical. They would say, I hope most of them would describe me as smart. Hopefully, I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I could definitely see them describing you as analytical. Uh, there's no question. So you're not hiding that from anyone. And uh, if anybody does any research on you, Stefan, you start to realize the analytics are what drives most of your behavior and the way that you add value to other people. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about diving into your expertise today. But give us a sense of a little bit of your upbringing, your backstory. Obviously, I know yeah. that uh, you immigrated to the US um, at a certain point in time, but a little over 10 years ago, I would, I, I believe. Yeah. So give me a sense of the upbringing, your backstory, and you know when you came to America and the decision there. Yeah, uh, so... I'm, I'm Eastern European, uh, Bulgarian originally. So I grew up in Eastern Europe. I came to the U.S. at 22 uh, for my master's. I wouldn't say immigrated because it was kind of like, oh, should I go back to Europe? What am I going to do? <laughs> but it was like, was, you know, I came for my master's. I went to Columbia, actually, in New York, and I, I still live in New York today. Um, and so I did uh, financial engineering, and then I worked in finance. I used to uh, manage a derivatives portfolio, like a $90 billion derivatives portfolio together with my colleagues. Um, so that was my job before. And um, at some point in um, like a few, a couple of year, few years ago, like several years ago, so I purchased um, a fourplex to live in one of the units. So kind of like house hacking, you know, <laughs> story and like living rent free COVID, you know, like from the other um, rents in the building. And, and so I liked it. I thought, okay, you have leverage, you get some income, there is some potential for a price discount. And so I thought it's a great asset to be in. And um, in the recent few years, I've been full-time in real estate and a multifamily investor and building my company Realty Quant as well. Yeah, I love that. So that's so interesting because so many uh, folks that I know in the real estate business, especially multifamily real estate business, started in a similar capacity, either by investing in a duplex, a triplex, a quadplex, and either house hacking or just starting small and kind of saying, well, wait a minute, this makes a lot of sense. So give us a sense of that because your financial background, obviously being a derivatives manager, um, transitioning uh, from a financial engineer to real estate and multifamily, uh, talk about the thinking behind that as well. I mean, was it just simply, hey, seeing it up close and personal and the cash flow, tax benefits and all these things? Or talk about the thinking behind that transition. Yes, that's a great that's a great question. And, um, you know, I get as often asked this question by my father, for example. He would say, you know, why would, you, why would you study financial engineering and then, you know, go in real estate? So it's a pretty, you know, somewhat unusual. And so, and so my answer to that is, um, you know, like... Uh, so one to your point of view, you see the asset, you get like you, you get some intuition from it, you know, be it through your primary residence at first and, and so forth. Um, but also really um, to me, it's if you think of a finance person, it's mindset. Like because you know, you guys focus on mindset to extent. Think of a finance person's mindset. So it's um, arbitrage, it's marketing efficiency, it's things like that. And so to me, like real estate was like I found over time is like the, the a finance person's kind of perfect playground, if you will. If you overcome some of the physical aspects and some of the castles and some of the fact that there has to be property management and all that, if you look at it as an asset from a purely like investment characteristic standpoint, it has inefficiencies. You can find properties at a discount. You can find there is income, there is leverage that is extremely efficient that you can borrow, you know, Loads of money for for your call it your business plan, and and so and so from a finance person's perspective, where in finance you would look for, you try to buy something, you try to have any kind of discrepancy, and it's incredibly incredibly difficult, and so uh, and that discrepancy is tiny, and you have like hedge fund managers do like extremely advanced strategies to just beat the market by half a percent, you know, and so you come from that and you look at this physical asset that has all those castles even, you know, and all those challenges, but at the same time in its investment characteristics is so superior and, and so good and so attractive to an investor. And so, and so that's like what I saw, like that's what I saw and that's what made me attracted to it and realized that, okay, that's a wealth building mechanism. Um, you can build equity gain in a more efficient way. And so I don't need to, you know, like keep working forever and, and saving money or something and investing. So. Good for you, man. And that is, um, it's such an insight that you shared about the finance mindset. It's arbitrage. Mm -hmm. 
and it's about finding efficiencies, right? It's about finding both of those things. Mm -hmm. And I think about, you know, really kind of simply, you can boil it down to those two categories. And I do want to dive in further to the data-driven mindset um, that you've really been able to bring to the forefront, not only from an education standpoint, but also from your own personal investing standpoint, which is really exciting. I think you're going to be able to add a ton of value today by sharing that. But before we dive into that, talk to me a little bit about your real estate investing experience and, and what that has looked like since you really made that that leap as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so being an investor in the like small multifamily space in New York City and around New York City, and so, um, um, so that's what I've been doing. So I've been doing my own projects. I'm just starting now with, on the commercial side and um, I built like a data-driven system that kind of to do like my own lead generation in commercial multifamily. And I can speak to that and like some tips, um, like tips for other investors and, and so forth. But what I've been doing um, so far is kind of short-term equity gain strategies um, on relatively stabilized assets that I discovered with data in the New York City area. So for example, um, it would be, let's say, um, downtown Jersey City, um, you know, building uh, for condominium conversion. So sort of like pulling all data, like finding properties that there's like maybe a discrepancy between the multifamily price and the co its con condominium components call it. Um, it would be another, and, and just to clarify, I think what's a little bit different from like what other investors do, at least in my area and, and, and perhaps other places is, it's never been so renovation oriented. It's never been so much physically altering the asset. So my mindset was always, it's an asset that ought to have the, a certain price discrepancy in SE's current condition. So it was always that I don't need to physically alter it. And this is kind of like coming back to the finance discussion and the arbitrage discussion and the, the market inefficiency kind of discussion. So that was what I was working for with data. So I would pull, let's say about um, 6,000 multifamilies, uh, which could be on market, then I'll put some off-market data as well for um, you know multifamilies in the New York City area. And I would kind of price them out on different criteria. Okay, which are the ones that have the highest cap rates, which are the ones that have, um, you know, like maybe some kind of price discount, uh, which are the ones that can be worth more through a certain restructuring strategy. And so these are like some projects that I have done. I purchased a small condominium building which was non-warrantable, which was zero renovation. And I raised its appraisal with no renovation at all. And so that was one. I did um, a four-unit residential property. I converted it to a five-unit code commercial where it was literally adding like smoke detectors in the fifth unit to make it legal and it doubled in valuation. So that was like another. Um, then condominium conversions, like in kind of expensive markets like downtown Jersey City, um, we hope, and kind of like right by New York City, New Jersey, some of the, the, the kind of pricier, pricier area there, there for condos. And so that's those are like other strategies. Um, yeah, it's been like different strategies, but the key is always to me has been, okay, if I pull thousands of listings, even if they're on market, you can find the top 0.1%, some, some real exception. And if you do it consistently, you know, you pull this data every single week, you will find the deals this way. And so that has been my approach. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of like, but it's really a little bit like flips, except the way in which you raise the value of the property has not been renovation. <laughs> I mean, I could renovate it. Yeah, I could. It's always been like an extra layer that I consider, okay, if I make the condition even better, okay, then it's going to be worth that and so forth. But it's not the part where I decide whether I take on the project. It's always been, I want to have the asset in, I, I never wanted to take on extensive, like kind of contractor's risk, you know, like where you, you would, would depend on, um, on that. And I felt it's also not my strength in a purely, um, uh, you know, like just in general, because because I can use data better than I can be a, a construction firm owner or something like that. And so that was just for me, I felt kind of using my skill set to its more optimal, um, you know, like best advantage kind of. Yeah. And I go back to sort of the earlier part of the conversation, you were talking about efficiencies and that finance mindset. And and one of the things about real estate that creates value in, in many ways is the fact that there are many inefficiencies, 
And so what you've done is you've applied your experience and your expertise from a data perspective to be able to pull a large pool of properties and identify mm -hmm. what is undervalued, right? What's undervalued currently without any sort of renovation requirements. And I think there's a little bit of a counterintuitive or maybe a, um, you know, a different than the herd thinking mentality that you're describing there, because most people are looking at deals and saying, how can I renovate a property, either flip it or add value, do the Burr method where I buy the property, I renovate the property, I, I, refine, I rent, I refinance and repeat, or I sell, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the, the typical mentality of many investors out there. But I would imagine that this approach allows you to pay market value without overpaying on renovations and so forth. And so you're using your expertise to source deals that have immediate meat on the bone, so to speak. So that's really, really interesting. So talk to me about how does that, what does that process look like? Uh, what tools are you using? What figures are you looking at to be able to identify if this inefficiency or undervaluation exists? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and actually, since you mentioned BRRR uh, strategy and um, in that, I've actually done um, a couple of projects where I purchased a property that was kind of a good BRRR project and I sold it to other investors and I discovered those with data. But then, then the, again, but then the thinking on that would be, okay, this is a, let's say, a complete rehab project. And then the thinking is, to find rehab projects which are discounted relative to where you know other investors would. And that's pretty profitable actually, because that's like, again, you buy it you literally, I did not even go to see those properties. Like they were, <laughs> it was like, if you buy a stock, if you buy like Tesla or something, and you, you know, just like, it just I just bought them like a stock literally. And then I sold it in several months and something like that. So, so that's, um, you know, so yeah, so it could be applicable also to like a rehab kind of thing. But again, then it has to be discounted relative in this rehab condition relative to what other investors would pay. And it's not super frequent. It's, it's kind of hard to find, you know, like there's um, most of the things are not really discounted in this way. So yeah, so to your question, so what system, so I mean, uh, Web scraping is very useful. I mean, I'm not going to hide, you know. So, you know, like there's so many companies out there who, um, in the reality is you have data online and um, you can purchase some data from different vendors as well. But there is always still so much more that is available online that you can utilize in terms of being even like various um you know, like market metrics and so forth, or just properties data. And so, so really for me it has been like web scraping, sort of the online resources that most, if we look at the own market side and an own market is not very trendy with investors because they think they cannot find deals on market because they think it's like only off market, but I think in the residential space, it's actually doable. And so it has been um, like web scraping, um, very uh, places like Redfin. I mean, yeah, I don't want to, <laughs> it's probably against their terms of service, but really for own usage, it gives you a lot of depth, you know, it gives you a lot of depth into like, okay, what is the, the unit split, how many bedrooms they have, like square footage and, and all that stuff. And sometimes it gives actually the rents, the current rents, actual rents that are in place for about 30% of buildings. And so this is pretty deep data that you can utilize and you can, you can know, okay, what are the cap rates, approximate cap rates in different markets. And, and they would pull like different rent estimates data as well from various um, resources and like aggregators online. And so you can kind of compute, you know, all that stuff and really rent row, um, you know, net operating income cap rates. Um, like I said, condominium conversions, like various splitages of the property. If it's a property that needs renovation, what's going to be its after repair value. Another thing that is very useful is, um, you know, automated valuation models, you know, things like Zillow's estimate code. So it's pretty easy to build your own automated valuation model. So in Python, that's something, I mean, in a, that works not great. It's hard to build a really good one. But the one that works like to some extent where if you operate in illiquid markets, like for example, places like upstate New York are very liquid. And so there aren't all that many transactions going on and, and prices tend to be like quite way off. So running an ABM on markets like that can help you discover discounted properties because they tend to like deviate like quite a bit. 
And, um, and so even if your AVM is like not super accurate and it's within 10% only or whatever, it, it's actually can be helpful in that case. And so an AVM is really like um, to some of, some of your audience who may be, uh, let's say technical, is um, like a machine learning regression where um, the location of the property is a geolocation, geo right? So it's numerized. So once you have a location that is numerized and you have like all the other parameters that are numerized as well, you know, number of bedrooms, square feet of the property, et cetera, it really becomes a question of running a regression that's not a simple linear regression, but that accounts for the fact that location has kind of non-linearity to it. That location is something where you can have a rough neighborhood next to a really great neighborhood. And numerically, these are two very close by locations, but they are very different. And so this kind of non-linearity gets captured with kind of more machine learning regressions. And the most standard approach that is used in ABM is um, called a gradient boosting regression. And that's something that's literally several lines of code in Python that people can do, or they can hire somebody on Fiverr to do it for them. And they would have kind of their own AVM and they would be able to go and okay, price houses, you know, in let's say specific zip codes and have some sort of measure and try to find, oh, some, you know, it's not gonna be useful for most, but some properties that are way off, you know, let's say and that's gonna be seen at least in that scenario. And that's exactly what you wanna find either way outliers. And so, so this is an approach. And ABM has another, like just like speaking to the techniques a bit, so at my company, I'm, I've been working recently on a condition scoring tool for, um, for textual kind of like property descriptions, which is like a natural language processing um, model, right? So in natural language processing, so one can pull, if you have like, let's say thousands of uh, property descriptions to kind of bucket them into, you know, is it a condition of one, like perfect condition or five needs complete renovation or three sort of like maintained property, and so condition scoring is an important component to automated valuation. And many like, um, you know, people have been aware that, okay, this is like, this is really what's holding like things like automated underwriting, being able to pull, um, you know, like thousands and thousands of listings. And there have came some startups, for example, a startup in New York called Foxy AI seem to be the leader in visual condition scoring, which is a computer vision model for, um, you know, assess in like kind of having images of houses or properties and like assessing what kind of condition they are, you know, scoring their condition. Because if, again, if you think about it, if you have this kind of automation, it means you're automating human intelligence. So now we all know how hard it is to underwrite deals. So the spirit of like this kind of data-driven thing that, that I've been doing has been very much to do automated underwriting to make kind of, my life easier, you know, in a way. And so, um, but to achieve that, you need things like vision. You need to be able to read images. You, uh, to, you need to be able to read um, things like reading text to read descriptions. And that's where machine learning is very useful. And that's where, you know, machine learning's application to natural language processing and computer vision. And that's been coming to real estate to an extent. And there are a few, um, you know, a few startups doing that. And of course, like some of the bigger private equity firms, they take advantage of, you know, of that and they have like different data, um, data teams and so forth. But those are some things. Those are some things. They can speak to the commercial space as well, where it's quite interesting um, for off-market properties, how that gets done. And we can touch on that too. <laughs> I would love to. And I just have to say, I mean, you've you've covered a lot in what you just shared. And I think it's it's really interesting. I mean, just to take a step back and to say, you know, there's all of these new technologies and tools that are coming into the purview of real estate investing that, you know, previously there's been this huge just inefficiency across the board in this industry, really in many ways, which has created value. And it's shifting to becoming hyper efficient in the ways that you're describing. And so it calls upon all of us to evolve and utilize the tools and understand what is available at our disposal. So first of all, before we get into the commercial stuff, um, how are you applying these things? Are you utilizing vendors across the board? Are you building these own machine learning techniques and, and valuation models and so forth internally yourself? Or how are you utilizing this as an investor yourself? Yes, um, I mean, yeah, I build my own models. Um, 
but there are vendors to use out there um, for rental listings data. There's a vendor called Data Affinity. Then for various like owner information, there's like APIs like Melissa API, Estated, uh, places like that. There are a few data companies that cover the real estate space that have really useful, really good stuff that people can, can do and that are not terribly expensive. So that is uh, definitely a good way, but I do my build my own models. So I build my own, like I said, NLP for condition scoring. I have my own APM. I do my own automated underwriting. Um, and on the market side, I, uh, like I said, my company has been the issuer of market valuation metrics, which is, I don't wanna say we haven't invented it because that's something that people can always have been doing, but really the value at that, um, my company had then was calibrating this kind of market valuation measure to the downturns that happens past, happened past the global financial crisis. And so really calibrating in a way to say, what is the percentage of predictive power? How much is it predictive? And that's like the, something that I was never seeing because you know people would use like different things and they would quote things like affordability index or you know like other measures. And, and, and so, but they wouldn't know like how much is it really what, what is the variable being predicted? If you have the variable being predicted, predicted being, for example, the magnitudes of downturns uh, in various states and various counties past the global financial crisis, then what predicted that? Was it foreclosure rates? Was it volatility? Was it um, sharp ratios, quite like risk-adjusted returns in different regions? And I was looking at those things actually at the beginning of COVID and and found um, you know like that essentially deviations from um, it price income ratios, but really if you take deviations from like a um, regression-based um, fundamental study of uh, incomes, population, and housing supply, and where prices should be based on this kind of regression, based on fundamentals, and you take deviation versus that on a moving average window, let's say 20 years back, you would have predicted the downturns past the global financial crisis. That's uh, to an 80, actually, and it depends on which which kind of region region level. If you take something like states, you would predict it very well. You would predict like 85% correlation. If you take it something like counties, then that gets harder. harder. So counties, it's about 75%. So that kind of looks worse, you know. You see it in the data. It's not so, um, you know, it's not fitting so well. And um, But again, um, this is another thing like on, on market valuation. So I build my own tools like for market analytics. And like I mentioned, the commercial side, I now started, since I'm transitioning to the commercial space, I've started like doing my own lead generation, kind of building my own marketing lists for that. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation upside without all the hassles of management, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. And, and by the way, I, I would imagine that it's a appropriate time to to mention I mean your, your company Realty Quant I mean if folks want to be able to access some of the stuff that you're talking about folks can can reach out and just go to realtyquant.com um, well, of course we'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find find that and find you because from an education standpoint not only from uh, you know everything that you're talking about from your own investment perspective you're offering this type of education to others and we'll talk more about that data-driven mindset and sort of the shifts uh, required to be able to optimize and maximize these type of opportunities. But I think it's an appropriate time to mention that because, you know, what you're describing here is is in some ways a very complex uh, approach, but it makes sense from a high level. So I would imagine if folks want to apply this, they can learn more directly from you and your team. But talk to me about the commercial approach. You mentioned deal sourcing, lead generation. Give us a sense of what that looks like. Right. Yes. Uh, so on the commercial side, so it, if you I mentioned like some vendors like Data Affinity, 
and um, Melissa API, for example, on the owner's data. So, um, so as you know, like commercial multifamily investors, they would often, they would use sources like Reonomy, um, Prospect Now, um, Yardi Matrix really for like commercial off-market commercial properties data. So you would pull, let's say, uh, you know, let's say in Louisville, Kentucky, right? You would pull what are the, you know, all the, all the, the different assets, like 100 units, 50 units, uh, 200 units, et cetera. And so what, uh, what my company has been working on is kind of, um, and it's probably going to be released in the next two weeks, hopefully, is kind of like an improved version of that where you don't just have the inventory and then, you know, like direct to owner, uh, send direct mail to the to the owners of those assets, but really it's more of actually modeling those assets. So it's more, and that's achievable via rental listings data. And the reason is, and that's again coming back to the data driven mindset. If you think that the internet out there just has so much information for you to utilize, and every data point can help you derive insights, and if we take commercial assets, and we can really look up. In, in something like rental listings, we can um, um, approximately model the income expense sheets on thousands and thousands of buildings where we don't have that income expense sheet. Nobody has given it to us. Because if you know, like otherwise, it would be like, you know, the moment, the way you underwrite assets is okay. You look up some deals, you get an agent, gives you a, this commercial multifamily, it has, let's say, 70 units. And these are the rents, and this is, you know, these are like the income and expense details. And that can be fairly deep. And but then you look at it in terms of, okay, are the, all those numbers accurate and are they exaggerating something, et cetera? But but really, this is an income expense sheet, and at that point only your underwriting starts. And what is a data-driven mind, mindset, kind of on the contrary, is when in the preliminary analysis stage, rather than the preliminary analysis just getting addresses and blasting out mail indiscriminately. At the preliminary analysis, you actually um, have already underwritten those buildings by their rental listings data, and you have looked at, okay, which buildings have rents below market, which buildings have other income components in rental listings data, places like apartments.com and, and others. They would actually list um, what other fees different buildings are charging. You know, Are they charging administrative fees, pet fees, um, application fees, et cetera, and one can compare those revenue sources as well relative to other to the, the, the immediate neighborhood. One can look at the, the utilities and um, you know what utilities they're billing to their um, tenants, et cetera. And one can also sort of proxy the occupancy based on you know, how many listings are coming out you know, for, for a property. And so having like putting those pieces together helps you model NOI at scale for off-market assets that you almost don't know anything about. You know, they're not on the market, they're not even listed, you don't even know what their price is, um, but, but by working at this stuff, you can infer, okay, maybe you can raise the appraisal of this building by 30%, you know, or whichever. And so this kind of analysis um, helps, um, you know, do more targeted campaigns. And then in addition, layering over, like having like this kind of property level analytics and layering over them like various like zip code demographics and so forth and pulling your own owner data for really any asset on an address by address basis rather than on a market by market basis is very data driven in that if I use this as an example now in my own um, investment so let's say I pulled six states of data and let's say in those six states there is 238 counties that meet my filters it's, my filters are pretty narrow, actually, but their properties spread out in 238 counties. Now, if I say that I'm going to filter, let's say, only markets that have at least 20 properties that meet my criteria, okay, then that's going to be only 38 counties. But I'm going to be missing on all those other markets that are, in fact, the ones where it's the least likely that other people are going to go because they're the hardest to get to, and they don't have this kind of data, and they... They, they're simply not going to do a direct mail campaign in county that nobody has heard of or so forth. And this can be some of the best deals. And so by doing this kind of address-based mm, with own modeling for that asset, if rents are, uh, you know, below market, like I said, and other components, you can just like tune your campaigns and I can be, how to say, like really professional about it and, and build your own marketing lists 
um, that that account for that. Okay, if you have all those different buildings where it appears they're at least their listings are coming out at pretty higher ends. Maybe they're quite optimized. Maybe there's no point to send mail to them at this stage, kind of save yourself some of the <laughs> direct mail costs and so forth. And, and so that's one thing I've been doing. And, and yeah, so really the, and the two that um, we are releasing at um, RealtyQuant is, is a version of that, where it's really gonna say, okay, if you have like different markets like Indianapolis or Louisville, Kentucky or other places, it's just gonna say, okay, these are some great commercial assets in your market. And these are the ways in which we can improve them to raise NOI and to raise valuation, to be to do value add on those properties. You can improve the rents in this way. You can improve the utilities in this way. So it's kind of like giving you, okay, some assets that, that have value add potential and also um, it's kind of tips and you know, like um, insights into what are some ways that one can improve them. And this is really from collecting data points online and just, you know, like modeling stuff. So Yeah, that's, I tell you what, man, uh, the listeners are probably salivating at this point, because when you think about understanding at scale, the opportunities and what you just described there to really gain a sense of, hey, where are those opportunities and how can we source them at, at higher scale? Because, you know, it, it, it is a very time intensive process to source deals, to underwrite information to really absorb that data to be able to have discussions one-to-one with every single you know operator or broker or seller and of course it's not like that is completely replaced by this process but i think what you're describing is a new opportunity for folks to create and unlock new opportunities and so when you think about this you know what you're describing here is an advanced sort of next step. So what what tips might you have for folks who are saying, look, the, the data-driven mindset makes a lot of sense. All of this information is available to us at our fingertips across the internet and so forth. And I'm sure that will just continue to compound. But what tips or suggestions might you have for the investor who's listening and saying, look, I want to go ahead and start making this application in my own business? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, yeah, I, I think the first tip is just to understand, okay, what what gives you competitive advantage as an investor in, a, um, you know, like if you take, again, the commercial example or the residential example, et cetera. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and then also, okay, how much is your, you know, if you're hiring people like underwriting deals, how much is, you know, that worth, you know, like are they, are you spending like too much money on people actually underwriting stuff that um, they're looking at properties photos, for example, you know, to assess their condition, but you can really run that through an algorithm and, and have it and have it ready, even if it's not perfect, but but to a high degree of accuracy really for those condition scoring models. And so and so it's it's I guess it's this kind of cost-benefit analysis of, I mean, on the what uh, you know, what are your current expenses that you're incurring in your real estate business and you know in terms of even employees and so forth and and you know what are if you do try implementing like a more data-driven approach, what's gonna be, you know, how, how are things gonna work there? What vendors do you need to sign up for? It's just keeping an open mind, understanding that that gives a competitive advantage, reaching to different data companies, like some of the ones I mentioned here, um, and, um, and just uh, utilizing that. The other alternative is, which could be cheaper is to an extent is also one can hire like web scraping companies, um, perhaps write an agreement where, you know, like if there's legal obligation kind of goes prim- primarily on them, you know, and things like that. And it's just, um, you know, web scraping companies or just people on Fiverr who would get data for you. I mean, if I look at something like even in my marketing, because I, I run a live webinar and we do like events every every week. And so at my webinar to, to promote that, I would actually... I would get, you know, like data on prospects, on like leads, like people who would be interested in these things from Facebook groups. And I would, and I went and I initially, and I didn't have the time to write my own scraper. And I went to a guy on Fiverr and he helped me write a scraper, which I ended up then changing myself afterwards. But, but really a scraper for like Facebook groups and kind of collecting leads of people who may be interested, you know, just in, on the marketing side. So if you look at something like, marketing, it's become extremely data-driven. It's like literally about pulling <laughs> various data, being emails data, being, um, you know, other like more narrow, like specific prospects of customers and, and so forth. 
And um, yeah, just having an understanding that that's, uh, you know, it's a richer approach um, that's also, you know, it's more automated. It, it makes you kind uh, of your everyday life easier. Um, Man, I love that, you know, what this conversation is really bringing to me is the resourcefulness and the creativity and the um, astuteness of applying efficiencies in all of these different capacities into real estate. And it's exciting. And I think that any investor can listen to this conversation and understand what is available to us and how this industry is continuing to evolve and those opportunities that are a result of this. One question that I had for you, and I, I thought it was a really interesting um, vantage point that you've had over the years, is predicting appreciation in markets and particular assets, as well as predicting downside risk. You've mentioned so many things in this conversation but talk to me about the methodologies there and what what pieces of information and data that you look at to be able to do that. Right. I mean, on predicting appreciation, now, you know, there's like machine learning kind of algorithms, things that Zero does and other companies, trying at least on a short term to predict like where price growth is going to be. But but the one, one thing I want to say just to people like for their like kind of that they can implement easily. If we look at... Um, you know, real estate places like Florida, for example, there is very high trend, there is momentum. And so that's an interesting thing. It doesn't need to be this in finance, they call it weak form efficiency. Is there, are markets weak form efficient are basically like historical prices predicting future price. Since if you look at real estate and did this kind of study myself. So one of the tests to test, uh, one of the tests to assess um, trend or momentum is um, autocorrelation. Autocorrelation uh, is just, you know, current year price growth correlated with last year price growth. Let's say if it's a one-year lag. So current year price growth, last year price. So let's say if you have a market in Florida, uh, is last year price performance, how much is it going to correlate with this year price performance? And the answer for Florida, based on like Federal Reserve data, was about 77%, which is damn high. And so if people want to like predict prices, even in those terms, like simply taking like the time series of prices alone and just like predicting that, you can just put it in Excel and do like some kind of forecast. There's the forecast function in Excel actually is a machine learning one, by the way. So one can just do that and like just like predict and that would probably not be super super off. You know, at the obviously at the end of the market cycle when things take a downturn, then it's going to be completely wrong, right? But during the, the upward uh, kind of trajectory and like while... Uh, we are in an upward market cycle, it's it's not going to be so um, off. So this is like, as far as appreciation, like what I tell people is if you pick markets that have per performed well and that have um, this kind of autocorrelation, like this kind of trend to them, you know, that is a good, that is your best bet. You know, if you're going for it and now, it's just going to be like, that's, you know, that's kind of like, that's the dynamic there. And, um, but the other thing to know appreciation, relative appreciation across markets, you need to know when they were last fairly valued. Because otherwise, if you take, for example, again, Florida, um, at the peak of 2007, before the global financial crisis, it was very overvalued by close to like 50%, 45%. And so Florida, in a way, um, you wouldn't know, you have to know like when it was fairly valued to start your time horizon then for your appreciation. And so um, if you take like the correct time points, then you get like the proper rankings of different markets. And now you know, okay, why Florida is such a strong market where, you know, like all big multifamily investors are and so forth. And you kind of get to see, okay, in the whole Eastern half of the US, this is the only booming kind of booming state. And where others have cut like more narrow um, you know, strength in, let's say, very specific cities, uh, but they haven't really experienced the broad-based growth. And so um, to, to, to such an extent. And so, so that's as far as appreciation, really just look at prices. Because I know like people, they also, the other thing, they, they pull fundamentals. They pull like, what's the population growth, um, you know, income growth in different markets and try to infer from that. Well, sure, but try to predict population, to forecast population forward. It's very hard. And so this is already reflected in the price. So if you have prices that already reflect those fundamentals, but then maybe they reflect more than that. And you see that in market valuation, if they have over-reflected stuff, you know, like, or like irrationally um, increased uh, those prices. So you can, um, by, by just this, doing this kind of, um, I don't know, forecasting of the time series, the price time series themselves, 
you would be do better probably likely than actually even looking at fundamentals because prices simply may not be appreciating according to fundamentals for the time being. And then you would have on the downside risk, you would have your market valuation, which tells you how much prices have deviated from fundamentals. And then you use that on the downturn. But as far as predicting like this couple of years of you know price appreciation, is for me, it's just like I said, it's a trend study. It's like a momentum study. And, and I feel people too much work. I have like in my data, I have like all those other fundamentals. I have like by zip code, all the income growth, population growth, et cetera. I don't actually look at it much, you know, because this is already reflected in the price. Um, we can see which are the, the markets that, that have been strong, that have performed strong. They're likely the ones that, that are going to be strong again. But the question that comes is also, are they overvalued? What's my downside risk? And this is like where it really quant. Because you mentioned like um, where, for example, your audience can get different tools. And this is one tool that I've been happy and fortunate that we've put out um, for people like, you know, already helping investors not worry and know if, you know, their markets are overvalued. Because we have um, at realtypond.com, we have like 2,700 counties of market valuations, which tell you if you have, um, I don't know, Miami-Dade County in in Florida, you know, what by what percentage is it overvalued or fairly valued or undervalued? And um, again, that's based on deviation from fundamentals, um, where this study has been calibrated to the drops past the global financial crisis to kind of what has been most predictive. And so, um, so that is another thing. And I can talk to actually um, for your audience. I can talk to like some of the cities which I see now as overvalued and. Um, which ones are, you know, seem like to carry less downside risk at the time, things like that. Yeah, sure. That'd be great. And and I think even beyond that, I mean, obviously real estate is hyper-local. Um, every single market, every single deal is unique in terms of the, the micro drivers that do relate and are correlated to the macro drivers. But I would be curious, uh, you know, your input on what you just shared there in terms of what markets seem to be overvalued currently, perhaps may, may some of those that seem to be undervalued. But I also would love to know what macro figures are you paying most attention to right now in addition to What's your crystal ball say, man? Where are we right now in the cycle? Uh, obviously, you mentioned you've mentioned the global financial crisis multiple times, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Obviously, that being a barometer. But where are we now, and where do you see this going over the next few years? Uh, if you had to uh, take a you know take a stab at and, and really take a take a leap of faith here in terms of sharing that information. Yeah, absolutely, great question, and. Um, Yes, so where are we now? Like, what do I see at least in the data? So here is what I see. It's actually pretty interesting. So what they see is that until the first quarter of 2021 of last year, US real estate was fairly valued. So that was reflected by, because um, I'm not the only person like doing like those studies. There's a study at Florida Atlantic University. There is a local market monitor. Uh, there is also, um, the more uh, global study is a study at uh, Bloomberg Economics by Nirash Shah, which compares like different countries and how real estate is overvalued in the, or not in different countries. So that study by Bloomberg Economics, it had in 2019 and then up to the first quarter of 2021 was showing US real estate is fairly valued. In other countries like Canada, and also uh, in countries in Scandinavia, like Sweden, and also Australia, New Zealand, and to some extent, the United Kingdom, were actually very overvalued. So if you take something like Canada, like, like a full-blown bubble, and that's been going since 2019 already. And so, and so that is quite interesting, but US real estate was fairly valued. That was sort of aligning with investor intuition, where we were not, even though some pe people would say, okay, properties are too expensive, things are really high, I cannot find a deal, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is there wasn't a sense of like a crazy, um, you know, like crazy kind of bubble kind of situation. Now, that's changed a little bit um, in, um, or materially, I would say in the second and third quarter of last year. The way I see this, and just to say what I actually mean, is, is the following. If we take the states of Florida and Texas, because like I mentioned, computing market valuations are actually, uh, and actually tracking it like quarterly and on a historical basis. And so um, the first time I did this study was at the beginning of COVID, I mean, like, like April of 2020. 
Um, but when I did it, I computed the full history of market valuations for 45 years back, like for every county in, in the states. And so um, the states of Florida and Texas, if you use this, like the big multi-places, big states call it where multifamily investors go, where, you know, like companies like Ashcroft Capital and, you know, so, so forth, like big multifamily syndicators go. And so... Florida and Texas, they were at eight to 10% valuation, slightly overvalued, kind of fairly overvalued a little bit. You know, they're trendy markets, but they stayed at eight to 10% consistently every quarter for four years. In the second and third quarter of last year, last year, this doubled to kind of 17, 18%. Now, 17, 18% is not terrible, perhaps, but you don't want to take a 17, 18% downturn, obviously, right? And so, and so, but that is kind of where they went. And so this showed to me like the kind of statistical, seems to me, seemed to me like statistically valid change in regime, if you will, where some uh, Southern markets and to a larger extent, I'm going to mention like some markets to the West, uh, started entering bubble territory. But that was that only happened in the second and last quarter of last year because I was at events before. Um, I was at uh, you know like real estate, uh, real estate um, podcasts and things like things like best ever in 2020. And uh, and the narrative was always real estate is fairly valued. You know that was always narrative. Like, it was like it's fairly valued. And so. Um, and, and this narrative changed. And so I was like, I was even, I was at some point for my own usage, I wasn't even updating this data because I was like, oh, it's always the same. You know, every quarter it's the same. And so it's no longer the same since the second and third quarter of uh, last year. And to, so where I would say it's more risky and kind of has definitely has entered bubble territory of let's say above 20% overvalued are the five states of Idaho, Arizona, Nevada, um, Utah and Colorado. So those five states are over 20% overvalued uh, by this measure. Now, again, if we take Arizona, for example, and why this happened, because you asked like about insights and like some of the kind of, let's say like things with inflation and so forth. So in, in Arizona, was it around 15% overvalued? It's an extremely booming market for four years, for several years. Now, in the first half of 2021, Arizona prices at the state level increased by 17%. Wages, on the other hand, increased by 1%. Now, it's possible that wages are going to catch up. So some of that, I'm hoping that some of this kind of entering a bubble or how to say like this kind of overvaluation may kind of slow down, hopefully a little bit, that wages catch up and you experience like stronger wage growth, you know, hopefully. But, but the, the reality there is that so Arizona jumped from like 15% to like 31, 32% overvalued. So that is a, a, that is a bubble as far as that goes. And we've heard like some of the, the, um, the stories, you know, like in the time, like at the time we heard like about rent growth in Phoenix, you know, where we had, I believe like 20% rent growth in Phoenix and things like that. And so this is great. Inflation is great for hard assets. But again, if you are a professional investor who knows market valuation, is not gonna be screwed on the downturn kind of, because that's that's the key. Because if you know market valuation, then there becomes a question, what if inflation, and that's kind of like the argument for 2021, when you ask me where things are and what they see in the, where we are in the market cycle. It's that in 2021, inflation accelerated, but it's more asset inflation. And there's obviously goods inflation as well. But, but it's less the inflation of, you know, some of the fundamentals that drive real estate, like wages. And so that is not uh, the kind of, um, you know, that is, that is great, you know, you're going to experience great appreciation, it's going to continue, like we mentioned trend before and momentum, you know, prices are going to continue booming in Phoenix, and in Boise, Idaho, and places like that. But again, your measure of downside risk is going to be according to, according to this, or according to what's um, most statistically predictive in like certain in regression studies. And so, and so that's, um, you know, so that's what I, I can say as to where we are in the market cycle, which is inflation accelerated, wage uh, inflation didn't catch up to that. In certain Western markets, the five um, Western markets that I mentioned and the little bit Southern markets, um, you know, reach like higher levels of valuation, which is again, I mean, if you, which is, 
just the first first starting point of that. So how many years ahead we have? I don't know. Could be four years. Could be could be less. I don't know. It's hard to tell because if we look at before two thousand and seven, in two thousand and two, U.S. real estate was super fairly valued. It's like if this same ratio of computing it, it's like around zero percent, you know. And then between two thousand and three and two thousand and five, the same zero percent or perhaps. 10% in those markets, went to like 40 and 50% in places like California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. And so, and then those same markets uh, by 2005, and then in 2007 only the market, the bubble kind of burst. And then those same markets of California, Florida, Arizona, and Nevada dropped by 40, 50%. And then um, on the contrary, there were 10 states at the time which were undervalued. Among those 10 states was the state of Texas. So Texas was 5% undervalued. Prices in Texas, as well as the average for those 10 states, dropped by only 4%. So 4% was the drop in undervalued states. So when I did this study before, I was like really impressed that, wow, so real estate is so fundamental that you have the biggest you know, crash in US recorded price history in real estate, and yet, Turns out that's actually only in overvalued places. Turns out in markets like Texas and North Dakota and um, you know and other states, uh, well, you know states, not markets, but one can look at the the more topical markets there as well, um, right? And and where which were undervalued, prices dropped only four percent, and four percent was the income, the average income drop in the U.S. after the global financial crisis. So in valuation terms, those states didn't drop. Because if you take like normalized normalized to income, let's say, they stayed the same. And so that was to me like a great observation of kind of risk management uh, and downside risk in real estate. And I felt, okay, in real estate, it's a private equity market um, where we know property valuation, we know asset valuation well, right? There's appraisals, there's even like automated valuation models, you know, to lesser accuracy, et cetera. And, and so we know we can find deals, like the earlier discussion that we had about inefficiency and finding deals. But also, in addition to that, we can know market valuation. That's super valuable. So we can be like Warren Buffett, you know, we can know like all the undervalued markets, undervalued properties. We can never lose money like this. You know, that's like literally, if you think about it, it is so easy. And it's a private equity market that there's alpha in it. And it is so easy, it's just amazing. And on the market side, it's been stunning to me that because I, I um, have uh, so many syndicators in my community, like on LinkedIn and so forth, you know, like people who do like multifamily, primarily investment management. And I find it stunning. They do, they, they, they pick property so well, they know how to find a deal. It's essentially a Warren Buffett approach on the property side. And yet on the market side, this is available. You can simply take things even like pricing compression. That's what I've been telling to people. It doesn't matter. Even if you cannot run linear regressions, compute pricing income ratios against the historical window. This is going to be a great measure that's going to tell you where to invest, where you have downside risk and so forth, and where you don't need to lose all your net worth after, you know, after a downturn. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, I've had like people like, you know, Rod Cleef. At my webinar, people like that, you know, who has like his lectures about okay, how I lost fifty million dollars after the global financial crisis, and then made them again. Okay, but again, it's a there's so many people who experience that. And uh, by the way, on the contrary, there was somebody. There was, for example, Vinny Chopra did his first syndication. He purchased it in two thousand eight. So one would think that's the worst time to purchase a property, and that apparently was a really good deal. It had a very high IRR, and so forth. But other than that, the property was a good deal. Um, he bought it in Texas. And it was also a specific county in Texas, which was further undervalued in the state of Texas, uh, excuse me, was 5% undervalued. And so he had no price drop. It didn't drop at all. <laughs> That's it, because he bought in an undervalued state at the peak of, you know, like ahead of the global financial crisis. And he saw nothing, nothing happened. But you know, but people who are in Florida, people who are in Arizona, people who are in Nevada, they had like 40, 50% price drops. And so, so that is the thing that uh, I've been kind of urging people. It's so easily available. And, and so, yeah, Realty Quant, my company is one source for that, that we have it at, um, 
you know, at the county level for every county and people can go. And we even offer lifetime updates where they can, you know, like they, they can like have, um, like they just, you just buy it once and you kind of like get like quarterly updates for that. So you just forever know where your market valuations are going to go and you don't need to worry and, and so forth. So anyways, <laughs> but it's, uh, Mm-hmm. Stefan, you are an absolute wealth of information and uh, knowledge, and I uh, just appreciate your insight and the way that you look at the market, the way that you evaluate data, the way that you apply the data-driven mindset, because I think in many regards, it can be a missing piece of information, perhaps the next piece for investors to take their game to the next level. And you mentioned it earlier, it's about wealth building. I mean, at the end of the day, reading this information, scraping this data, allowing this to drive insights and behavior uh, from an investment perspective is really where you can unlock such immense value. So thank you for all of this. And I want to transition into our rapid fire section of the podcast. We call it the rare air questionnaire. It's all about being uncommon. I mean, what you have described today in terms of insight, in terms of scraping, in terms of collecting information and making scalable decisions and perhaps putting yourself in a position to have uh, you know, outsized asymmetric returns as a result is uncommon. And so I want to talk to you about a few things and really more personal development uh, related would be just w- number one, uh, if you had to point to two or three of the most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, what would those be and why? A great question. Um, well, does it have to be business books? Right? Not at all. Uh, Absolutely uh, not. Well, I like, I, I'm not too big on business books. I like The Richest Mind in Babylon, you know, like books like that, some of the old like classics on that. And I mean, in real estate, I like the, the apartment, what is it called? Apartment syndication book by Joe Fairless. He's kind of a useful guide. And, um, you know, I am not too big on business books, to be honest. I I'm with you, man. Same here. In fact, I don't read a lot of business books, but what other, <laughs> okay. are there any others that are non-business related? Yeah, I like, I read books about like nutrition, you know, like healthy lifestyle. And um, I read, I don't know, a book that I liked was like, it's called Cure Two to Decay by Rami Onego for people into like some of the, um, how to say like um, more, um, it's it's a little like ketogenic kind of diets or paleo, you know, but it kind of like more, more in that direction. But, um, but it's just a, I felt it's like a good, like wealth of information on that. And I like philosophy very much. I, it's actually one of my hobbies. I, I've done, I'm on medium. <laughs> I've done some, uh, like personal, like kind of short form philosophy, um, there. So, so I like that. I read with my daughter. We read like some like basic, like philosophy books and that's uh, awesome, man. That's Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we will put links in the show notes as where the listeners can find the books that you mentioned. And I love that. I think it's important for us to expand our horizons beyond just real estate. I mean, obviously applying the tactics, the strategies and the insights that you've shared with us today are critically important, but we've got to expand our minds. We've got to expand our horizons and our perspective because to be a well-rounded individual, it's not just about optimizing strategies. It's about to understand uh, not only ourselves, other people around us and design that life, man. So that's awesome. And uh, if you had to point to the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis, Stefan, what would that be and why? Great question. Um, I moved by the beach recently in New York. I live in New York City, but I moved out kind of like a surfing neighborhood by the beach. And um so I would say kind of living in nature, being an entrepreneur, um, work where you work from home, you work for yourself, where you focus on equity gain rather than, than income, where you don't care about income anymore because uh, you're equity gain optimizing. Um, those have been like lifestyle changes for me that have helped me, uh, you know, live a different life from going to a nine to five job and, um, in finance and trying to save your money and things like that. So that has been elevating for me on a personal level where you, and the other thing, like, again, like, again, for your audience is, and that's where the data-driven mindset comes into play. Like, why do I care about doing data-driven things in real estate where, where you can make money even without that? Yes, but it's, it's less healthy to one system to not be at the peak of his uh, mental abilities. 
it's 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 very healthy to be at the peak of your mental abilities. It keeps you um, it keeps you in shape. It's like physical exercise, right? So I found that okay, when I once I got in real estate, I found that if I simply do transactions, if I just have to be like kind of transactional, buy this property, sell it, and so forth, I found that I wasn't feeling very good. You know, I felt kind of I get a little bit depressed, like my I was focused, my my mind is kind of um, you know jumping around and so forth. And so to me, it's also like some of the data-driven mindset uh, in the earlier discussion that we had, that we had uh, has been elevating on a very personal level to simply have focus, to simply have um, inspiration, you know, simply have things that that you like, that you that you are useful to other people, and so forth. And so that has been like the the driver for me for that. And I think this is at a very true at a very physical kind of level where one needs to use his brain you know and if you are um good at like other kinds of things you you do that but you kind of stay optimal and stay stay healthy <laughs> and alive like this you know that's how it works yeah. <laughs> that's important it's very important to have purpose right and to think about what's the bigger picture what's the reason what's the why behind what i'm doing right now yeah, yeah. uh that's that's so good what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you stefan yeah, so with uh, like some of those like data drew, I guess tools and <laughs> we already mentioned. So kind of like offering like analytics uh, mindset technology tools to other people. Um, I actually started a course as well on that on data driven investing. It's also derivativequant.com. Um, um, so to kind of teach other people how to do some of those things. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man, I just want to acknowledge you for your immense level of expertise and the way that you're providing that and giving that to other people, the way that you're committing to pushing the envelope in so many different ways to question conventional wisdom in this business is it's refreshing. It's exciting because, you know, this business in many ways can feel like a good old boys club, uh, especially as you continue to rise the ranks. But I think what you're showing is that, you know, we can question conventional wisdom and we can change the way that things are being done and we can take things to the next level. We can elevate. And uh, I just want to acknowledge you for that. I want to acknowledge you uh, for your commitment to excellence and your commitment to expanding yourself uh, personally, professionally in so many different ways. So, Stefan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, the listeners can find Stefan at RealtyQuant.com or, of course, on Instagram at Stefan uh, S. Uh, T-S-F-E or where, where can they find it on Instagram? <laughs> well, yeah, the best way is realtypan.com, also LinkedIn, and I have a YouTube channel. So my YouTube channel is called Finance Meets Real Estate on YouTube. Um, yeah, we put some good content out there as well. <laughs> perfect, perfect. We'll put a link in the show notes as to where the listeners can find your YouTube channel as well. Uh, Stefan, thank you so much again for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Tyler. Elevate Nation, is your head spinning with opportunity right now? Because mine is. And I'm excited. I'm excited about the tools and the opportunities that are at our fingertips. The people like Stefan in this world who are pulling together so much advanced, um, you know, different things across the horizon that can help us make better investment decisions, that can help us optimize, that can help us bring efficiencies, that can help us identify arbitrage in our investment portfolio uh, and really across the market. Uh, and so it's very, very exciting. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Stefan. If you did, uh, definitely wanna encourage you to share this with a friend, go ahead and pay this forward by sharing on social media, grabbing the link, send that to someone else, um, pay it forward because that's the only way that we can continue to grow. And it's a way for you to add value to someone else as well. So I wanna invite you to do that. I also wanna invite you to re-listen to this show. There's a lot, a lot there. And you'll obviously learn twice as much if you listen twice. And also, if you have a discussion, have discourse with someone else, what was it that you want to apply to your business immediately? I want, to, want you to identify your top one, two, or three takeaways from this episode and go ahead and take action on those now because knowledge is not power. It is only potential power and really the opportunity for you now is to take massive action. So thank you so much for listening today. Until next time, Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.